I'm Philip Podzadlowski. I'm also a professor here in astrophysics and will tell you about gravitational waves. I'm sure everyone here in this room has heard about the discovery of gravitational waves that was announced last year. It made all the front page news. The was first item on the BBC News in the evening. And it was one of the really big discoveries in physics. It's comparable with the discovery of the Higgs boson a few years ago. I mean, it proved Einstein's theory of general relativity to very high precision. It actually proved beyond reasonable doubts that black holes, the types of objects Professor Fender was talking about, actually exist. And it has really started a completely new era of astronomy, that of gravitational wave astronomy. Now, I'll first tell you a little about what a gravitational wave is what causes it, and then how you detect it, and what the future of this field will be. To understand that, you need to understand the difference of gravity between Newtonian gravity and Einstein's general relativity. In Newtonian gravity, space and time are fixed entities. Space in this direction is this, and this direction is that. In special relativity already, space and time are connected. But in general relativity, it goes even further. Space-time becomes a dynamic elastic entity. Masses affect the space-time, and space-time affects masses. So you have a mass moving around. It distorts the space-time around it, and that produces a gravitational wave. And that distortion moves with the speed of light, and that's what we want to detect. Einstein predicted that in 1916. He estimated that the effect would be so tiny that it would never be possible to detect it. Now, in this case, I think it was good to be wrong. But, yeah. Now, what does it mean that space is curved? We usually illustrate this. This is a mass, and we use this distorted coordinate system. But basically, what it means is, if you look at the shortest distance between two points, it's not really a straight line. It is actually curved. So if you have a star like the sun and you have some light from a star behind it, it would not pass in a straight line. It would be curved by the gravitational pull of the sun. This distortion of starlight has, was one of the first predictions of Einstein and was actually already measured in 2019. But this doesn't produce a gravitational wave yet. That's just a static distortion of space. For that, you need moving objects. And to produce the large distortions, you want very compact objects. The ideal objects there are neutron stars or black holes, the types of remnants you get from, the, from a supernova. For those who were not at Professor Fender's talk, a neutron star is the core of a collapsed core of a massive star. It has about the mass of the sun but it's only about 10 kilometers in size. And a black hole is even denser, so dense that light cannot escape. So if you have two such massive objects, each of them distorts the space-time around it, 
but they orbit each other, and that produces a periodic distortions of space and time, and that's a gravitational wave. Now, if we have these two neutron stars doing this, the gravitational wave itself carries away energy. And that energy comes from the orbit. And the consequence, therefore, is that the orbit starts to shrink. And it's that gravitational radi radiation itself that drives the system closer and closer and ultimately, ultimately makes the two compact objects merge. This effect for neutron stars has already been detected several decades ago, indeed, Hulse and Taylor got the Nobel Prize for that already in 1993. But that's the indirect effect of gravitational waves. Now, if you have such a wave that now passes, moves through all space and passes through this room, what does that mean? Well, it will distort space and time in this room. So what I measure to be this long will be a bit longer or a bit shorter depending on the phase of the wave. So space, measurement of space, is changed. Now in this case, if you have two neutron stars spiraling in, the st local distortion will be the period of the neutron stars. And this is illustrated here. This measures the distortion, the local distortion of space and time. Space becomes a bit longer, a bit shorter, and as the Newton stars get closer and closer, the period becomes shorter, the frequency bigger, and at this point, the two objects merge. Now, look at the time scale. It's 0.1 seconds. All of this happens in one-tenth of a second. Now, you see there are several periods per, per tenth of a second, so the frequency is several tens of hertz. Now, if you convert that into a sound wave, it becomes audible. And indeed, did you hear that? That's just converting that signal into a sound wave. So here, how the tone goes up, the signal becomes stronger, and that's just what you see here. Now, the frequency of the sound depends on the masses of the object that merge. And in fact, for Newton's star, you get that sound. For a black hole, you get a deeper sound. So if you are very musical, just by listening to the pitch of the signal, you can tell, well, that's a 20 solar mass black hole merging with another one, or that's two solar mass Newton stars merging. Just once more. That's called a chirp, and you can estimate the mass from that chirp. Well, how do you actually do that? <coughs> this gives you the several gravitational wave detectors that are operating and planned. The ones that are most important for us today are these two, two LIGO detectors, both in the United States, on different sides of the continent, 2,000 kilometers apart, and that's important. They are what's called in, well, this is an image of the two. See, the detectors are in here. And there are these two long arms. They're four kilometers long. They are part of what's called a Michelson interferometer. 
this diagram illustrates how that works. We have uh, some laser source that produces some light, which you split into two beams. And these two beams are then sent down the two arms of the interferometer. You get many oscillations back and forth, but afterwards you bring the beams together again, and then you look at the combined signal. The way it works is that if there's no gravitational wave, the two beams you bring together are 180 degrees out of phase. So when you add them up, you don't get a signal. But if there's a gravitational wave passing through this, then the length of one of the arms is slightly different. And that produces a slight phase shift. And so when you combine the beams, you no longer get, you get a signal. And that's what you observe. Now, what's the magnitude of that signal? Well, what type of distortion do you measure? It's 10 to the minus 18 meters. It's obviously a small number. It's difficult to tell what that means. An atom is 10 to the minus 10 meters. So this is 100 million times smaller than the size of an atom. A proton is 10 to the minus 15 meters the small elementary particles you're made of. So it, this is one thousandth of the size of a proton. Or to phrase it differently, if you measure the distance from the Earth to the Sun, you have to get that distance correct to the size of an atom. Just give you these comparison to illustrate that this is really amazing. I'm a physicist. I cannot explain exactly how they do it. To me, that sounds like magic. And I'm sure there's some magic involved. In any case, it's, it's quite a technological feat, and they will get the Nobel Prize for that this year. That's, there's no doubt about that. Of course, you may wonder, <coughs> what if, can other things produce a signal? Indeed, they do. If you have a truck passing by one of these detectors at 10 kilometers distance, it produces a signal that's much, much bigger than that. If you have an earthquake on the other side of the, the planet, that will also produce a much bigger signal. And that's the reason why you have two detectors, 2,000 kilometers apart. You're looking for the, exactly the same signal in the two detectors, and only if you get simultaneous detection can you actually make a claim that you may have seen something. And even then, you can have false discoveries. So this is how it's detected. What did they see? <coughs> the first detection was the merger caused by the merger of two black holes of about 30 times the mass of the sun. This is the signal in the two detectors. You see, they are essentially identical. It looks a bit different from what I showed you earlier, because you only see the last few periods of the spiral in. And that's because these are massive black holes and LIGO is not so sensitive to the black holes. What you see exactly is shown here. So if you have this final in spiral, you get this periodic distortion. At this point, the two black holes merge. And then you still see something. Because even though you now have a single black hole, it's not yet in its final state and space and time um, still 
I distort it and move elastically. In fact, I'll show you that in a movie. This movie shows you the last 0.7 seconds in the life of a black hole binary. You have two black holes here. You see the distortions of space-time indicated below. You see these big holes. That's because they're two black holes. And down here you see the signal you would, would be able to discover. So this is the last fraction of a second in the life of these two black holes, so it's super, super slow motion. You see now in the last, now they slow it down, you still have two distinct objects, two black holes that are separate, but this is now the last 10 milliseconds where the two black holes merge. You see the distortion of space around it. At this point, the two black holes, the event horizon of the two black holes have merged and now you have a single black hole. But here, now you see this elastic motion I mentioned showing that space-time is really very elastic. It's like, like a piece of jelly, if you like. <clears throat> okay, so that was the big discovery. Now, <clears throat> it's difficult to tell where it came from. With one detector, you wouldn't be able to tell at all. With two detectors, there's a small delay between the two detections, and you can use that to give some rough idea where this occurred in the space, in the, in the sky. So you see it occurred somewhere between the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud. This was announced and many people were looking for, to see whether they could see some counterpart, either in the optical or in x-rays or in the radio. In fact, Professor Fender was involved in that as well. But nothing was found. Of course, there are millions of galaxies in this region of sky, so it would be very hard to find anything. And in the case of two black holes merging, we also don't expect anything. They just disappear. That would be different if you have a neutron star, and then hopefully you will see some optical counterpart. This gives you an idea of the masses. Mass estimates, both of the masses were around 30 solar masses. And interestingly, you can measure the masses before and after the merger. And by comparing the two, you can calculate that roughly three solar masses of energy were emitted in the gravitational wave. Three solar masses of energy that corresponds to about 30 supernova explosions. So in that sense, it's actually quite energetic. Now, this is not the only event that was discovered. There are now two or three, depending on how you count it. If you look at this top diagram, this sort of shows the mass estimates of the two objects. The first one much, was much more massive than the other two events, so it already tells us there's a whole spectrum of black hole masses. They're all black hole mergers. Now, some people, then the masses were quite high, 30 solar masses. That's much higher than the masses of black holes we know in our own galaxy. But that's not really surprising. If you go to galaxies that have lower metallicities, we expect more massive black holes. There are different ideas of how you form them. I will not talk about that. But if you're interested, 
can find me somewhere and I'll go in more detail with you. This is just an illustration from our own work that <coughs> illustrates the main points. If you want to have two 40 solar mass black holes merge, you obviously need to start with fairly massive objects. In this illustration, we have two stars that initially have masses of 70 and 56 times the mass of the sun. The two stars evolve, do all the nuclear burning, and as Professor Fender explained, at some point, there's no nuclear fuel and the, core, the stars have to collapse. That may produce a supernova or not, or the whole star just implodes. So at some point you have two black holes, and for them to merge, they have to be quite close. They have to be with the, orbit, the orbit periods have to be a few days. The whole evolution, the stellar evolution, only takes a few million years, but the time to the merger can take billions of years. So this is just one particular model. In fact, we make some specific predictions, namely that you can also have much more massive black holes, not just 40 or 30 as observed. There can be a few hundred solar masses. We actually also predict that they should be detectable. Detectable throughout the whole universe. Okay. <clears throat> so, to summarize, well, LIGO has in the first science run, which ended last January, found two or three black hole mergers. They shut it down in February, in January, to update the detector and make it more sensitive. Since November, it has run again. It's now in its second science run. It's much more sensitive, actually sensitive more sensitive by a factor of two, which means you can see sources to two times the radius as before, which means eight times the volume. And so the rate in this present science run should be eight times bigger than the first run. I know that it has already discovered a few more black hole mergers, but as far as I have heard, only black hole mergers, not neutron star mergers. Indeed, what are we waiting for? The next breakthrough will be the mergers of two neutron stars or neutron star in a black hole, or as we predict, the discovery of merging intermediate mass black holes. The rates for these events are quite uncertain. It's possible that they will be discovered within this year, but it may still take a few years. Right, to summarize the importance of it, well, already mentioned, it tests the theory of gravity, but it also actually tests the physics of black holes and neutron stars once the neutron star mergers have been found. From an astrophysical point of view, they provide a new test of the evolution of massive stars. And since these mergers can actually seem, be seen throughout the whole universe, it gives us a probe of the universe at high redshift. Thank you. Thank you.